He did. And the children can go with John. John. Kids and I will be away this next week. I'll be speaking at a youth conference for 11th and 12th graders. So if you think of that, you can pray for me as I as I speak to them uh, about from God's word and for Jana and the kids as they hang out with us uh, at camp. I'll miss you guys next week, but I'm glad to be here today to preach from God's word. We're looking at Acts chapter 17. This will be page 926 if you're using the Bibles here at the church. Those are underneath the seats in front of you. Acts chapter 17, we'll begin at verse 1. We're continuing here in our study, looking at uh, Paul's second missionary journey. Moments, But I want to begin with prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you give it to us. We thank you for this church, Lord, that you have gathered your people together to worship you. You've worked in each of their lives to bring them here. Lord, I pray you'd ready us to hear from you. Give us your spirit that we may listen carefully, listen eagerly, and, Lord, examine your word. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right. So, Acts chapter 17, beginning at verse 1. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days... He reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous. And taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now, these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica, 
They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed, with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. So, are you one of those rare people who likes to hang upside down from the monkey bars? A few of you. Uh, or maybe you like to walk a- around, you know, upside down, standing on your hands. Uh, I think for most people, being upside down is a bit scary. Last week, a roller coaster in Wisconsin got stuck in the middle of the loop with the riders upside down. And it took four hours for them to get these people down while they were hanging upside down. Sounds a little bit like a nightmare, doesn't it? In fact, there's actually a a pretty popular Netflix show out there uh, in the horror genre. It's called Stranger Things. Uh, Maybe a few of you are aware of this show. There's this terrifying alternate dimension that looks like a nightmare version of Earth in it. And, And that dimension is called the Upside Down. So... It's not generally a good thing to be upside down, at least for a while. Our bodies aren't made to be upside down. Eventually they fail. Our lungs get crushed. Our hearts work too hard. And in fact, in, time, in the time of the apostles, uh, the Romans, they would sometimes crucify people upside down if they wanted to speed up the process. So we uh, know from church tradition that uh, the apostle Peter was crucified upside down. So when the Thessalonian mob screams in verse 6, these guys are turning the world upside down, it's not a good thing. They are not congratulating the apostles' work. But the question we should be asking ourselves is, who really is upside down? Are the apostles upside down? Or is everyone else upside down? And Paul and his friends are just trying to turn the world right side up. I think the answer will become clear as we work through this text. And so we see first, apostles who are bold for Jesus. So that would be my first point. Bold for Jesus. So uh, Paul is on his second missionary journey. And if Courtney, you can pull up our map. We'll look at that just briefly. So we have here on the edge, uh, Antioch, where they start off. Um, Paul and Barnabas split, and Barnabas, see this black arrow, heads to Cyprus with Mark. Paul and Silas 
they go up into southern Galatia right here, and they visit the churches that they'd already planted on their first journey. They're just encouraging them and sharing the decision of the council that we saw in Acts 15. Uh, in Lystra right here, I know you guys can't read everything, uh, Timothy joins them, and then they start to head towards Asia. But they receive this, this uh, guidance from the Lord that they are not to go to Asia. And so they head north, and they're thinking about going to Bithynia right up in here, but they are also told not to go to Bithynia. So they go straight west, and they end up over here in Troas. And it's in Troas where Paul has his vision from the, with the Macedonian man saying, hey, come over and help us. Uh, uh, Courtney, can you go to the zoomed in map, the next one? Okay, so here, this is zoomed in, there's Troas. So they take the boat over, they land in Neapolis there, and then they head to Philippi, and we saw Philippi last week, Jonathan preached on that text, and we saw that in Philippi, uh, there were a lot of good things, right? A lot of, of fruit from their time there in Philippi, um, but they also end up getting pretty beat up, and they have to, they're forced to leave, um, and so from Philippi, they travel about 100 miles down through Amphipolis, Apollonia, to Thessalonica, right there. Thessalonica is the capital of this Roman province of Macedonia, a very big city. Um, and then we see they end up going another 50 miles about to Berea, and that's the end of our text. Uh, the rest of their journey, they'll spend time in Athens down here, a lot of time in Corinth, stop in Ephesus, and then head home. So that's the second missionary journey, just to give you guys the context there. And I think you can see, you can turn off the map now, Courtney, thank you. I think you can see, even just looking at this journey, but also uh, in our text and his travels from Philippi, the determination and the strength of Paul here. He, he's been in Philippi, he just got pretty beat up pretty good. Uh, what did Jonathan say last week about those rods, right? They were like small bats, I think is what Jonathan said. The text emphasized in, in chapter 26, sorry, chapter 16, 23, verse 23, it says there were many blows inflicted upon them. I don't know about you, I'm not sure if I'd be ready for a 100-mile trek after that kind of a beating. That's the kind of beating you get broken ribs from, broken noses. But the boldness we see here, Paul is driven. He goes to the next town, and he does the same thing. Uh, you, you think maybe he'd change his uh, strategy a bit to avoid further beatings? I mean, you've got to imagine Silas or Timothy sort of bringing up the conversation on their long hundred-mile uh, walk to the next town. So uh, what's the plan with this next place, Paul? You know, maybe there's some way we could avoid at least the whole riot thing this time. Uh, well, we just read the text. You know how that works out. They do have a better hiding spot the second time around. We will give them that. But if you just zoom out for a second and think about these three cities that they go to in Macedonia, right? Remember, there's a man who begs them in a vision to come to Macedonia. Uh, but, but what happens in every place they go to Macedonia? Forced out. They get driven out. Every city is a mixture of beautiful moments, hearts changed, unexpected people joining them, uh, but also suffering, shame, opposition. 
And, you know, Paul is a unique guy for sure, but, but this pattern is typical of following in Christ's footsteps. It's how he molds and he shapes his people to look like him. Suffering, glory, all mixed together. Uh, sorrow, joy. It's not strange. It doesn't mean we've been abandoned. It's not to be avoided. We don't look for suffering, but it is part of the journey, just like it was for our Savior. You just look at how Paul describes the life of Jesus to these people, right? Suffering and rising. But how can we be bold like Paul? Here, Well, he shows us the way. It's not easy, but it's straightforward. He's bold for Jesus. He's bold because he has a message about someone who saves that is better than any message this world has. It's the story of Jesus Christ, which is a true historical story. Paul makes that very clear here. It's a better story than any story the world can tell. When you are gripped by it, it makes you bold. It's a message about someone who can save. Everyone knows they need to be saved. It's obvious this world is a mess, and the problem is us. People who try to locate the problem in other places are in denial. The problem is us. Who can save us from us? Well, the Jewish scripture said someone called the Christ would save them. But, you know, many of the Jews did not grasp how big the Christ would be. They were thinking too small. They thought, you know, Christ would save them from the Romans. He would be a king like Solomon or David who made the nations bow to them once more. And so the first thing Paul does is he goes to the scriptures and he explains and proves there's more to this Christ than you guys are seeing. Verse 3, the Christ had to suffer and die and then rise from the dead. You see, they did not understand the greatness of their problem. And so they did not understand the greatness of the salvation they needed. They didn't just need a king. They need to be born again. They needed someone to die for them and to rise for them. And so Paul shows them. He probably used passages like some of those we've seen in the book of Acts already. Psalm 22, Isaiah 53 speak of the suffering and the death necessary for the Christ. Psalm 16, Amos 9 speak of the resurrection, the restoration of the Christ, because this is what we need, friends. We don't just need a better government in this world. That won't fix our problems. We need someone to kill the sinful man inside of us and make it new. That's what we need. We have people dying all around us. We have babies we don't get to see. We have parents we have to say goodbye to. We need a king who can conquer death. 
Paul tells these people, this is what God always planned to do through the Christ. It's there. It's in your Bible. Read it. And then he says, and this Christ has come. His name is Jesus. He did suffer and die. He did rise. I've seen him. And I proclaim him to you today. Verse 4. And some of them were persuaded. Brothers and sisters, if you believe this message, you can be bold. If Jesus died and rose for you, you can know where you will be 100 million years from now. You can know who you are, who you will be. You can know why you're here. You can know why big picture, not specifically, but big picture, why things happen. This is the certainty of the gospel. This is the boldness that comes from knowing the risen Jesus. We forget, we forget, we forget, and we fall into fear and doubt. But Paul did not forget, at least not here, because he made Jesus his life. And so he was bold. Is he upside down? Or is he right side up? Well, let's look at those who claim that he's turning the world upside down. With my second point, blind with jealousy, blind with jealousy. The Bible warns us that a jealous man cannot be reasoned with. Uh, Proverbs 27, 4 says, wrath is cruel, anger is overwhelming, but who can stand before jealousy? Or Proverbs 6, 34, jealousy makes a man furious. He will not spare when he takes revenge. And we see this attitude in the Jews of Thessalonica, whom the text tells us in verse 5. They're jealous. Now, why are they jealous? They're jealous because uh, we read a great many of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women in the city, are persuaded by Paul to believe in Jesus. So these devout Greeks, these are exactly the population that these Jews had hoped to convert to Judaism, to have them join their tribe. This would be like, you know, spending your years, uh, spending years, multiple years, preparing someone, helping them to grow, to fill a place in your company, you know, only to have someone else swoop in at the last moment and steal all your hard work away. Or, you know, kids, this would be like, you know, building this beautiful Lego boat only to have somebody snatch it right out of your hand as you're about to finish. That would make you mad. And these people are mad. Now, they wouldn't be mad if they had listened carefully and could see that Paul was speaking the truth and offering them something so much better you know, like that, this, this other company was offering you a position, too, that would fulfill you and enrich you beyond your imagining. Or, you know, that kid was really offering to take your Lego boat and you into the Lego land of your dreams where all your Legos came to life, right? But, but they're deaf, they're blind to all this goodness that Paul is offering them. They don't see it because... They're jealous. Their jealousy must have been chewing at them that whole time. Unlike the Bereans, they don't show any interest in examining the scriptures to see if what Paul says is true. 
their jealousy blinds them to the truth. Some of them were persuaded, but nothing like the many who believe in Berea. But I want us to think about jealousy for a second, because I think it's more present in our lives than we might think. Uh, the word that is translated jealousy here actually means zeal, zelao it is, which, you know, we don't talk about being zealous uh, very much, but it's a good word. It basically means to be intensely interested in something. Uh, so, you know, we saw in our first point, Paul is zealous about Jesus. He's intensely interested in Jesus, and, and that's a good kind of zeal. But we can also be intensely interested in bad things, which is where these Jews are at. They're intensely interested in their team, right? Their glory, their power, their earthly kingdom. That's a bad kind of zeal, which is why ESV translates this word jealousy, right? To make it clear, this zeal was a bad zeal. But this is where it's tricky, see, because these Jews probably told themselves they were being zealous for God. They thought this was a good zeal. How do they get off track? Well, they stop seeking to know what it is that God wants. They stop seeking to know what it is that God wants. This, of course, is where the deep contrast is between them and the Bereans. The Bereans are eager to know what God wants. They're seeking it. But the Thessalonian Jews, they're interested in what they want. And so they are zealous for their own desires. Is this where you can get off track, too? Are you so intensely interested in what you want that you fail to ask first, what does God want? It's when you're only considering what you want in life that you go quickly down the vicious road of jealousy. The fact that, you know, we humans have desires, that's not wrong, but we need our desires to be shaped by God's truth. Jealousy flips our world upside down and blinds us to the truth. Consider the blindness of these people, right? Just, just, what do they do? They go out, they hire the, the bums of their city, verse 5, some wicked men of the rabble, and they form a mob to set the city in uproar. And then they have the nerve to tell the city authorities, it's the Christians that are disturbing the peace. Right? I mean, listen to their accusations. End of verse 6. They've turned the world upside down. They're acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there's another king, Jesus. Now, there's obviously some truth there. Jesus is king. But the Christians aren't the ones disturbing things. They are. Uh, the word here, uh, turn the world upside down, means they've upset the stability of the world. But who are the people who just started a riot? They're hypocrites, aren't they? And then later on, when the apostles go to Berea, verse 13, they go start a riot there, too. And Berea wasn't even close. Fifty miles, we said, right? That's at least a two-day hike, full two days. 
Jealousy has blinded them to how ridiculous they look and has fueled their hatred into this runaway train. I think it's becoming clear who's really upside down, isn't it? These poor, blind Thessalonians are really the ones who are upside down. And sadly, this is the position of the unbeliever who rejects God's truth. The Lord keeps them alive. He gives grace to this whole sinful world that deserves nothing. But their time is ticking down. Just like those people in my introduction, hanging upside down in the roller coaster with a few hours left. Friend, there is another king. Jesus, a far better king than you will ever be over your life. A far better king than any of the governments or experts or utopian ideals you might live your life for. Turn to him. and He will turn you right side up. He will expose your hypocrisy so that you will no longer be blind, but be able to see. The Bereans are able to see. They are eager for the truth. So let's turn to my third point, eager for the truth. Now, the writer of Acts explicitly compares the Bereans to the Thessalonians here in verse 11. He wants us to be more like the Bereans. He, he says these people were more noble than the, Thessalonian, the Thessalonians. And he goes on to explain two ways uh, why they're more noble. So first, he says they're eager listeners. They're eager listeners. They receive the word with all eagerness. And I, I've preached long enough to feel the difference between a group of people that's kind of sitting back to be entertained or just kind of going through the, the Christian motions of going to church or critiquing me before I even open my mouth. And on the other hand, a group of people who is leaning forward with expectation to participate in the act of preaching, who, who want to interact with my explanation and application of the text. I bet Paul immediately noticed the difference, right? Uh, he spent three exhausting Sabbaths. Look at the verbs back in verses 1 to 4. There's a lot of them. Reasoning, explaining, proving, proclaiming, and persuading these Jews of Thessalonica, trying to get them to move to the truth. A few are persuaded. I I'm not even certain that means that they really believed. Uh, Paul's later letters to the Thessalonians don't indicate there were any Jews in the church there. But so the shift to Berea must have been so encouraging for Paul to suddenly have these people eagerly listening to him, sitting forward. must have been so refreshing. It seems clear that God was already at work in these Bereans' lives, to give them the kind of passion uh, for his word that, that caused them to be looking, seeking the truth in the word. But notice, right, they don't just listen and accept whatever Paul says. Uh, secondly, we see here, they are eager examiners. They're eager examiners. 
End of verse 11. They examined the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Paul's not the authoritative one for them at this point. They, they listen respectfully. But they don't just want the words of a brainy, charismatic dude like Paul. They are eager for the truth. Uh, notice what the authoritative standard for truth is for them. The scriptures. The scriptures are the lifeblood of Christianity. Just look around. Look around the U.S. The churches and denominations that are growing old and tired, small, thin. Go into some of those beautiful old churches in the cities. See how many people are left. The common thing you'll find in those churches, they are no longer eager examiners of God's word. They don't have a high regard for it anymore. It's not their authority. In another generation, they'll be gone. Because they don't have any truth to offer anyone anymore. To live right side up, you need true truth, absolute truth, something you can actually stand on, a road through the muck, a rock to build your life upon. Only a God who knows all things and has taken the trouble to communicate them to you can tell you what is absolutely true. He speaks in his word. We need his voice to be the loudest voice in our lives. Which means being an eager listener and an eager examiner. And, you know, this text is actually revealing to you some amazing things about the Bible and how we should view the Bible. Uh, everyone in the church needs to have a Bible and needs to examine it to see if what the pastor is saying is what God says. This is part of being a Christian. You don't just rely on the experts and the pastors to, to read the Bible for you. Absolutely, confessions, creeds, commentaries, your pastors, seminaries, important stuff. I'm not saying don't use good scholarship, right? That, that would be foolish to, to ignore that. But at the same time, the scripture is not the domain of the experts. It's not chained to the pulpit. The Bible is for you to examine. To read, to understand. And you need not accept anything someone who calls themselves a pastor or a Bible scholar as automatically true. Compare it to God's word. If it fits, you do need to accept it. But if you're not sure, pull on the thread. Be respectful, but ask questions. Learn, examine, grow. And that's another thing we see here. We see... That intellectual engagement with the Bible is part of belief. You know, it's not just some sort of mysterious work of the Spirit in your heart. It is a work of the Spirit. That's true. The Bible teaches that. There is that aspect of belief, absolutely. But notice also, from the human perspective, how logical the flow of belief is for these Bereans. Something is explained and proved to them. They do the work. They examine the Bible daily to see if these things are so. And then they believe. These people are not blind. They see very clearly because their world is being turned right side up. They see the problem of this world clearly. Sin is real. It's in their hearts. And only a Savior who dies and rises can turn things around. 
Are you right side up? Some in the world will shout that Christians are the ones turning things upside down. It might not be an angry voice. It might be a seductive voice in your life telling you you're upside down. But we know better. God created this world. We messed it up with our sin. God loved us so much, he sent his son to save us, Jesus of Nazareth, the Christ. Praise God for a Savior like Jesus Christ. May he give us boldness to proclaim his name, clarity to throw off our jealousy, and an eagerness to receive and to examine God's truth. Father, we thank you that you give us your truth, that your word is truth. We ask that you would sanctify us through your truth, teaching us the right way, turning us right side up. Lord, may we be like Paul and his friends, boldly telling people about the Christ, the Savior, the Messiah, who who loved the world so much that he came and died. Lord, we pray, Father, you would give us hope this week as we reflect on that truth. And Lord, you'd lead us as your people. For we are your people, your children, the sheep of your pasture. We pray this in the name of our shepherd, Jesus. Amen. Get your hymnals. We'll sing a final hymn together. Number 255. If you're using the hymnal, it'll also be projected. Hymn number 255. Please stand as we sing this. <clears throat>